There's two passages. The first one is in the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, just three verses. You'll find that on page 209 in the Bibles. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of their land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after. They ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. And now we turn to Luke chapter 15, which you'll find on page 991, verses 1 to 3 and then 11 to 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant land, and there conquered his, squandered his wealth on wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the eldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, 
you fill, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the gospel of Christ. Thank you. That's such a magnificent parable, isn't it? Such a wonderful story. Um, I'm going to invite Linda now to come and uh, unpack it a bit for us. Um, it's really one which I find every time you come back to it, you find something new, don't you? It's really multifaceted. So let's pray for Linda as she brings the facet she's discovered this time. <laughs> Lord God, we pray for Linda. Thank you for uh, the blessing she is to this church. Thank you for her learning and her wisdom. And we pray this morning that uh, as she speaks to us, we will hear that coming through and we'll hear your voice speaking to us. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, David. It's good to be back with you again. It's been a little while, but uh, here I am uh, to continue. I think this is the final in your series of Lenten Reflections. And um, while it is no doubt joyous, Forgive me, I'm just going to raise this a little. I know I'm little, but not that little. Um, I think it's also a very challenging story. So I'm going to try and bring out a bit of the challenge as well. But relevant to today, which is a special day, obviously. Not just in um, society, known as Mother's Day, with quite a lot of commercialisation around it now, most of which came from across... Uh, in the United States in the early part of the last century, but there's a much, much older tradition. <coughs> anyway, let's uh, reflect on this passage. You know that the season of Lent in the church's year offers us an opportunity to make the journey with Jesus up to Jerusalem, where some of the key events that take place in his life are going to happen. And these are the events that form a firm foundation for our Christian faith today. And today we're about halfway through that Lenten journey. And we take a little break to observe Mothering Sunday, recalling what is actually a very ancient tradition in this country. Because for several centuries, it was considered important for people to return to their home or their mother church once a year. So each year, in the middle of Lent, people would visit their mother church, which was the main church or cathedral of their area in the days before we had numerous denominations. So for this area, it would have been Ely Cathedral, which for me is a special place because it's also the place where I was ordained as a priest a number of years ago. But that annual return to the mother church also became an occasion for family reunions when children who were working away from home returned to their home. Because it was quite common in those days for children to leave home to find work at about 10 years old often to become an apprentice in a trade or a domestic servant in a household. And historians think that it was the return to the mother church which led to the tradition of a day off being given to children who were working away from home so they could return to visit their mother and their younger siblings. 
And as they walked along the country lanes, returning sons and daughters would pick wildflowers or little bunches of violets to take to church or to give to their mother as a small gift, and hence our tradition of posies. So on Mothering Sunday, we have this double association. We pay attention to and give thanks for those who gave us life and who nurtured us in our human families. And we also pay attention to and give thanks for the church and all those who gave us life in the Christian faith and have nurtured us. And that actually resonates powerfully with our gospel reading from Luke, chapter 15 today. Jesus' poignant story of a parent and a child and a family. More on that in a moment. In chapter 10 of Luke's gospel account, we hear how Jesus started his journey southwards towards the capital city and religious center of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the ancient city which in some senses is actually the spiritual mother for the Jewish nation, even today. And having been to Jerusalem recently, it's quite sobering to see how important and how divisive perspectives on Jerusalem are today. And we recalled in chapter 13 how Jesus himself shed tears over Jerusalem and its destiny, which is still being played out in our own time. On his journey towards Jerusalem, Jesus engages with his disciples in a continuing ministry of teaching and preaching to ever larger and larger crowds, telling the stories and the parables that he's become so well known for. And in our passage today, we heard how Jesus' stories and his message were attracting tax collectors and sinners to listen to him. But this was to the outrage of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were also drawn to listen to him. They observed Jesus not only conversing with undesirables, but even sitting down to eat with them. And they criticized him for it. For in their eyes, a sinner was anyone who failed to keep the Mosaic law, or laws, to be more accurate. And to eat with a person who broke the law indicated acceptance and recognition, something which could not happen if a faithful Jew was to remain pure and holy in the eyes of God. Jesus responds to the criticisms leveled at him by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with a trio of stories. The first is a simple tale about a lost sheep who is safely recovered by its shepherd when he leaves the other 99 sheep to go and look for it. Everybody would understand that one. No one wants to lose a sheep. Then he tells a shorter story about a lost coin, perhaps a coin from a woman's dowry or from her savings, precious, which is only rediscovered as she carefully sweeps her home searching for it. And both those stories end with a joyous celebration among friends and neighbours. Something precious that was lost has once again been found and restored to its rightful place. Good reason to celebrate. Jesus' third story 
is longer and rather more sobering. It's about a lost son. Jesus describes a family, a father with two sons. We are not told about a mother. His younger son asks his father to give him an advance share on his inheritance. This might sound straightforward. But it was a highly unusual arrangement. And from our Western cultural standpoint, we probably don't really understand what's going on here. New Testament scholar Tom Wright explains it as follows. When the father divided his property between the two sons and the younger son turned his share into cash, this must have meant that the land the father owned had been split into two, with the younger boy selling off his share to someone else to realise the capital. The shame that this would bring on the family would be added to the shame the son had already brought on the father by asking for his share in advance before the father's death. For it was the equivalent of saying to his father, I wish you were dead. But the father apparently bears these two blows without recrimination. And he gives the portion of the property to his son and watches him leave. And to this day, there are people in traditional cultures like that of Jesus' time who find the story at this point quite incredible. We may not, but in many parts of the world, it is an incredible story. Fathers just don't behave like that. The father should people say, have beaten his son or thrown him out. So there's a depth of mystery already built into the story even before the son leaves home. We tend to rush to the end of the story and the joyous homecoming. But there is much that goes before that we need to understand and be challenged by. So what we have here is Jesus telling a highly unusual and controversial tale, a countercultural story that goes against traditional expectations and social norms of his time. It's a bit different to the lost sheep and the lost coin. In contemporary culture, the son's actions, the younger son's actions would have been seen as shameful, for he abandoned his obligation to care for his father in old age. And we should be challenged by that too in our culture. In the eyes and ears of Jesus' listeners who include Pharisees and teachers of the law, the tale just goes from bad to worse. The younger son reaches a foreign land, spends all his money on wild living, and when he finds himself in trouble, his degradation reaches a new low point. Because For a Jew to have anything to do with pigs is bad enough. For him to be feeding them and hungry enough to share their food is worse. The younger son's lot is clearly not a happy one. Having abandoned his home and his family, having freed himself from all moral restraint to do just what he likes, it finally dawns upon him that this is no way to live. 
He comes to his senses and he discerns a way out. Perhaps he's been dreaming of home and longs to return repentant. Or perhaps he's rather more calculating and decides that even a place in his father's house as a labourer, a hired hand, is better than being a swineherd in a foreign land. We don't know. We can choose to read into the text our own hopes or aspirations about his motivation, but we don't know. Either way, he takes the initiative, having come to his senses, and sets off for home. And I think there's quite an interesting difference between the story here of the lost son and the two earlier stories that Jesus told. Because in the stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin, both the shepherd and the woman set out themselves to look for the missing objects, and they searched diligently until they found them. But in this story, we don't see the father setting out in his grief and loss to do that. Perhaps he's too old to travel, or perhaps he cannot leave his property. But I wonder if it's important in this story that Jesus told that the youngest son needs to come to his senses about his predicament, about his selfishness, about his self-centeredness, about his brokenness. He needs to take the initiative. He needs to do the turning around and to begin to find his way back. He needs to want to make that journey for himself. No one else can make that decision for him. He must choose that, for that is the nature of repentance. We come to our senses, perhaps in response to a long, buried sense of who we are really called to be by God. And then we make the choice to turn around and find our way home. But, of course, what the younger son doesn't realise is that his father is on the lookout, perhaps from the rooftop of the family home, perhaps day after day, perhaps week after week, month after month, year after year. We don't know. Any of those are possible. And when he sees his son far off, coming towards him, he's filled with an overwhelming compassion. And this elderly father throws off his years, picks up the skirts of his full-length robe, and in the most undignified manner for a respected Jewish elder, runs to meet and greet his lost son. The title given to this fourth and final reflection in the series on repentance is Feeling Loved. And that's good. It's good to feel loved. 
But I felt this story of Jesus was less to do with feeling loved and more about being loved. Did the younger son feel loved when he returned home? Were his words to his father genuine words of repentance or were they rehearsed and calculating? He had practiced (coughs) while he was still far away what he would say when he returned home. Did he cry? Did he rejoice? I don't know. I don't think the gospel text tells us very much at all about how the younger son felt on returning home. In fact, the focus in the story is not really on the younger son at all. It's on the father. Luke describes how the father feels, what the father says, and what he does. And in this beautiful picture painting by Rembrandt of the return of the prodigal son, if we look closely at the characters, we see we can't easily tell what's going on in the head of the younger son, but we can see very clearly how the father is feeling. Now his son is no longer lost. Everything the father says and does is intended to restore his lost son, despite all that has happened, despite all that the father has suffered, and all the feelings that must surely have gone with that. He embraces him, brings him close. And many commentators have noted that in the two hands on the shoulders of the prodigal son who has returned, it's possible to discern both a male and a female hand. The father replaces his son's filthy rags with the best robe in the house to show his status as a son, not a servant. Similarly, he commands a ring to be put on his finger and sandals on his feet. I'm sorry it's difficult to see this, but if you can have a look online at the (coughs) photographs of the painting, you will see all of these elements captured. Sandals on his feet to replace the broken and holy sandals that he came back with, emphasize the younger son's restoration in the home as a full family member rather than as a barefoot slave. And then there is a party to be organised with the best provision the loving father can provide, a fatted calf, and the extravagant, careless, prodigal love of the father overflows into celebration. From the moment he generously gives the younger son what he asked for originally, all the way through the long months or years of waiting, through to the wonderful homecoming welcome, We have painted by Jesus as vivid a picture as anywhere in his teaching of what God's love is truly like and of what Jesus himself took as the model for his own ministry of welcome to those who are broken 
marginalised and in a faraway land. And thank God for Luke, because we only have this story in Luke's Gospel. And Luke, of course, knew very well as an outsider, as a Gentile, what it meant for those who were marginalised in contemporary society. Women, the sick, children, the alien, the refugee. And his gospel is full, full to bursting of attention to those on the edge. Of course, there's one person who isn't at all happy at the younger son's homecoming. And we hear more about his feelings than we do about the younger son's feelings. He definitely wasn't feeling loved. The older brother bitterly resents his brother's seemingly easy return and re-entry to the family fold, and his bitter resentment explodes into angry words to his father and a petulant refusal to join in the celebrations. Family dynamics. Don't we know them well? I wonder, did the Pharisees and the teachers of the Mosaic law who heard Jesus' story recognize themselves in the person of the angry and resentful older brother? After all, they were the faithful Jews who kept God's law and thus deserved, surely, God's favor and love. They deserved to feel good about themselves. I wonder, did the tax collectors and sinners who were listening to Jesus see themselves in the younger brother, welcomed back into God's love despite being marginalized for their low status or despised for past choices in their lives? And did Jesus' disciples listen to his story and see in their rabbi and friend the character of the loving father? No one has ever seen God, writes John of Jesus' words. But God is the one and only who is at the Father's side and has made him known. The Bible shows us how it is Jesus who embodies that fatherly love, opening his arms for us wide on the cross that we may run into the Father's presence and know we are safely home. And what about you and me? Who are you and who am I in this story? Where would we place ourselves? Who would we align with? Henry Nouwen's book, written in the 1990s, entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son, offers a powerful meditation on the various characters in the story, based upon Rembrandt's famous painting. Nouwen titles his book, Meditation of Fathers, Brothers and Sons, but I think it could equally well be called a meditation on mothers, sisters and daughters 
for in my experience, the family dynamics are not dissimilar, whatever age we are. Henri Nouwen encourages us to reflect on each character in the story in turn to help us learn more about ourselves and our attitudes. I first saw this famous painting by Rembrandt when I was a student many, many years ago in my 20s in the Hermitage Museum in Leningrad, which was Leningrad then and is now St. Petersburg. And then, strangely, many years later, I saw a framed print of the same painting propped up in a corridor while I was on a quiet day in Ely. And as I sat and looked at it, I was amazed to see my own reflection in the glass. That was the way the light fell. And I found myself reflecting on who I felt closest to in the story. And I have to say, I think it's the older brother, someone a bit like the Pharisees and others who are all too easily tempted to see themselves as doing the right thing. But I suspect God calls each of us to be more like the loving father or loving mother, extravagant in love and mercy, so that the world knows itself to be deeply loved by God and to belong safely within God's love. And so my closing challenge for Lent is this, what will be more important to you this week? Will it be the experience of feeling loved yourself? Or will it be a fresh commitment to ensure that others are being loved with the love of Christ himself, the love that comes from the Father, the love of a mother that gives birth to new life, the love that has the power to recover what is lost and to restore what is broken, the love that God promises will last for eternity. Amen.